I'm Kendall, and I'm a Christian who struggles with anxiety. So really, I was doing everything right. It wasn't getting better. I was continually trying to figure out, okay, if my faith is supposed to solve everything, why isn't it helping? And that... I don't want to say it threw me into a faith crisis, but I definitely was kind of like, okay, what's going on? Something isn't adding up. You know, we know antidepressant works, but we don't know how they work. And we don't really know why some work for some people and some don't. So it was like a good two year process to finally find a medication, one that worked and worked for a long period of time. The I'm a Christian Who podcast is real stories from real Christians. We're not here to judge anybody. We're not here to talk politics. We're just here to learn how to love others better. When it comes to mental health disorders, the church has a long way to go with learning how to talk about these in a really healthy way that makes people feel loved while struggling. Anxiety disorders specifically are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 19.1% of the population that's 18 or older. That means if, if you look through your church, one in five people sitting in the pews are struggling with some sort of anxiety. So when Kendall reached out to me to share her story about anxiety, I thought it was really interesting because not only does Kendall have an anxiety disorder, she's a counselor who helps other people with anxiety too. So if you're looking for encouragement from someone who knows what it's like, who's also going to give you practical tips on how to grow, this is the episode for you. And before we start, I'd love to give a shout out to our sponsor, Salt, the dating app made by Christians for Christians. What I love about Salt is not only does it introduce single Christians to other amazing single Christians, but it lets you match and connect on values, character traits, and interests, not just pictures in a quick paragraph. The other cool thing is they've got daily live audio events where you can connect, talk, and chat with hundreds of other single Christians on loads of different topics to dating, film, spirituality, and more. I'm actually going to be on there weekly talking about the topics that happen on this show. So if you want to give it a shot, download the SALT app today. And for those in the U.S. and Canada, use my code CWCS for three months of free premium. Wherever you are, if you meet someone special, let us know and we'll feature you on our Insta story and get SALT to pay for your next date. Go on, add some SALT to your love life. You've got nothing to lose. It can go one of two ways. And before we get to your story, I'd love your your th thoughts on this, is anxiety can be one of those things that is totally pushed to the side and totally like downplayed or said like, oh, it's just anxiety. Like everybody feels anxious. You know, there's that kind of thought process. But I think most people do understand that anxiety is a real thing when it's serious and it can be crippling for a lot of people. So in a general sense, what was it like for you? Was this kind of something you struggled with a little bit or was this something that was like life-altering for you? Oh, it was 100% life-altering, especially as I look back, you know, kind of during my college years and really up until about a year or so ago was really, really intense and it was really debilitating. So what, what were your like first memories? Like thinking back maybe even to when you were a kid or something like that, your first time where you remember this feels like something that's that's bigger than me. It feels like something that's that's going to be a problem. I think in general, the anxiety has always been present. My parents divorced when I was little. And so my role kind of stepped into this like, oh my gosh, all of this stuff is going on and I don't know what to do and I have to make everything better. So even as a kid was very much like trying to figure out and navigate, okay, what is this feeling? Obviously not knowing that it was anxiety in that sense, but recognizing that like, ooh, this doesn't feel good how can I get away from this? That kind of avoidant tendency of, I don't like this, how can I get rid of it? Was it? Were there any specific moments you remember as a kid as being something that was particularly anxiety inducing that you felt like was the first time you remember really struggling? 
Um, probably the first time I really remember struggling was in high school because it was such a physical manifestation. Um, when I was a junior, there was a stretch of time where really kind of the physical aspects of anxiety, you know, the physical illness, the stomach aches, the migraines, the chest pains, all of that was really coming to the surface for a stretch of three or four months during my junior year to the point where I was in the doctor's office with my mom. They were running a bunch of tests. And they kind of just came back and they're like, yeah, nothing's wrong with you. This might just be, you know, anxiety. It might just be mental health related. And at that point, I'm like, uh, no, it's it's not anxiety because at that time that was early 2010s. So the conversation surrounding mental health was not there. The association with anxiety at that point was, well, that's associated with people who are, you know, at risk of self-harm or severely depressed kind of leaning into the suicidal ideation. And that wasn't me. So I was like, no, this is an anxiety. So that was really the first time when I was like, okay, maybe this has a name. Yeah. So what, what, for people who don't know or don't experience anxiety, what is it like when you can feel it coming? Like, does, does something set it off? Is there like, are there like certain triggers? Like thinking back to high school, when you start like now that you're older and you can think back in retrospect, what does it feel like for people who don't experience it? If you had to put like a description on how it feels. Oh, gosh. Well, my experience is going to be different from so many people because anxiety manifests in so many different ways. Um, But for me, I mean, even now, like some of that authority stuff of like, oh, my gosh, am I in trouble? has still kind of lingered from childhood, but very much is like, oh no, someone's going to be mad at me. I'm going to get in trouble. And it's a spiral that just continues down. One of the best examples I have is like, my boss will pull me into a meeting and be like, hey, let's go talk. And I'm like, oh no, what did I do? And it just is a, <laughs> it's a spiral that just, it continues. It's, they talk about kind Which of that. I feel like, I mean, n- not to interrupt too much. I think that's something that's a relatable feeling where like, I, I think a lot of people, when your boss are to come in or like, you know, and say like, I need to talk to you. We all like to think the worst, but mm-hmm. what is it when you talk about a spiral, how do you define that? Because I think that seems like it's the differentiating factor. You know, everybody gets anxiety when their boss says something that makes them worried. But what's the difference for someone who might not know, is this anxiety or is this just natural worry? What is that difference? So for me, that spiral looks like, you know, I can start with, oh, no, my boss wants to talk to me. What did I do wrong? You know, it's immediately kind of that negative um, connotation. But then three minutes later, I'll be in. I'm going to be homeless. I'm not going to pay my rent because I'm going to get fired. And then I'm going to have to go live with my mom. And then I'm going to not have have my car. And then I'm going to waste all this time and money. Like it is such an intense spiral of all of these negative thoughts. And it's, it really is like a domino effect because this thought rather than my brain being like, Oh, my boss wants to talk to me. You know, this could be bad. This could be good. I can probably just go with the conversation knowing that I'm a little bit worried. It spirals so fast into what am I going to do? I'm going to end up homeless on the street. And it's kind of funny to think of it that way, but it really is so intense. I tend to start getting really shaky. I know my voice kind of cracks a little bit. And then I kind of go in and cope with humor because it kind of brings me back up a little bit. But the reality is, yeah, you are taking a kind of mental path down a road that would only happen if you sat down and kind of planned out, okay, if I did this, then this. And some people can get there 
they sit down and kind of write it out and it takes them a while to truly put thought into it. It's such an automatic process with the anxiety because your brain is so used to making those connections down the way. It just it just happens and you can't turn it off. But so how long did it take because the, to, to get, you know, diagnosed or some sort of recognition for this? Because, you know, you mentioned this happened in high school. You said it was 2010 where like people weren't or the early 2010s where people aren't really talking about it that much. So did, how did your parents react? Like, what do they do when you're having these like physical reactions to anxiety? Like, was it something they just wanted to like, like it was like, oh, let's just give it time and hopefully she'll get better. Or was there actually a concern? Like, where did that concern step in? That concern stepped in for me when I was a sophomore in college. My mom very much responded in high school, like, oh, it's just teenage angst. Like, you're fine. You'll get over it. You know, you're applying to colleges, all the normal teenage things, which isn't an incorrect response, especially Did you believe it was teenage angst? Yes, 100%. Um, and it really wasn't until I was, it was the end of my sophomore year. I, you know, we might touch on some of this later, but I had had experiences, you know, my first two years of college where I was paralyzed and could not leave my dorm room for multiple days because it was that intense. And even in conversations with my mom at that point, we're like, well, you know, it's college, you're stressed, you know, you're doing a lot. And there was just a time when I was, you know, I was taking all of my psych classes that year. And I was like, maybe this makes sense. Maybe this is what's going on. And I remember calling my mom at the end of my sophomore year. I was getting ready to transfer to a bigger school. And I just said, I think this is more than stress. Like, this doesn't seem like a normal stress response. You know, my friends are all stressed and they're not having this response. My friends are still going out, but I'm confined to my dorm room because leaving causes a panic attack. So it wasn't until then. And I I did end up going home to, you know, my hometown doctor and kind of talking it out with them and getting on some medication. But You know, if you think of from junior year of high school to sophomore year of college, that's a long time to finally figure out that, oh, this is way more than something that's normal. Well, and and there's another layer to this that we haven't touched on yet. And that's the the aspect of your faith, because, um, you know, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I might assume based on, you know, what, what you sent to me, that you were a Christian at the time mm-hmm. and um, that you, you were going to church. So that's the reaction you're getting from, you know, your school, your doctors. Was there a difference in reaction? How was your faith community reacting or were you even bringing it up with them? You know, if I think back to high school, I was doing everything I was supposed to do as a Christian, right? I was going to youth group. I was teaching Sunday school. I was talking to my youth pastor. I was working, you know, youth retreats, you know, growing up in the area I did. You would go to a different city with 70 other kids, work a youth retreat. You know, unfortunately, all of those things are anxiety inducing, having to do all of that stuff. <laughs> you see teenagers in a room and expect them to be fine. It's not going to happen. But yeah, I was, you know, I was reaching out to those people. I was doing all the things I was supposed to do. There was even like a Facebook prayer request group for, for this youth retreat. And I was in there all the time, like, cause I knew something was wrong. And I was like, why is, why is it not being fixed? Why is God not fixing it? Why is my prayer not enough to fix it? You know, why aren't I feeling better? And I remember at a time, like going into that group almost on a daily basis. And eventually at that point, you know, you're in there, you're the annoying kid in the Facebook group that no one wants to respond respond to anymore. So the responsiveness kind of went down, but really nobody thought in that group and what I was saying to my youth pastor um, and to people in my youth group, no one thought that it was a problem. And that's problematic because the things that I was saying, especially in that group on Facebook, that was made up of a lot of adults. That was problematic that none of them thought 
maybe we should reach out to a youth director who they all knew, to school, to parents. So unfortunately, it probably could have been addressed a lot sooner, especially through the faith community. But again, was met with a lot of like, oh, we're praying for you. Or, you know, have you tried praying this specific prayer? Have you tried (laughs) praying this prayer? Or like, I can't count how many times someone threw like 1 Peter 5, 7 at me. And they're like, cast your anxiety on him. And I'm like, great, thanks. Not working. Give me something more. So really, I was doing everything right. It wasn't getting better. I was continually trying to figure out, okay, if my faith is supposed to solve everything, why isn't it helping? And that, I don't want to say it threw me into a faith crisis, but I definitely was kind of like, okay, what's going on? Something isn't adding up. Okay, so let's go back to now your your sophomore year of college. You you recognize that something is actually wrong. Like this isn't just teenage teenage angst. I think this is more. What were the next steps after that? Like that that got you. uh, I mean, did you go get a diagnosis? Like, what do you do from there? So I went to kind of my hometown doctor, small town doctor, just family practitioner. Um, They put me on medications. They put me on an antidepressant just as a starter. If you're unfamiliar with kind of how dosing in uh, mental health goes, it really is kind of a crapshoot. You'll hear a lot of psychologists say like, you know, we know antidepressant works, but we don't know how they work. And we don't really know why some work for some people and some don't. So it was like a good two year process to finally find a medication, one that worked and worked for a long period of time. And that's challenging because you have a bunch of side effects. I was transferring to a bigger school at that time. So I really was kind of like, well, new school, new environment, maybe I'll do better with medication. So it was a lot of kind of trial and error for a while. As I got into my senior year, I started seeing an on-campus therapist. And at that point was really just kind of more like, I need a sounding board. I don't really know how to tackle why this anxiety is happening, but I just need someone to come to when... I want to talk about what's on my mind. And that was helpful. And then again, med changes and meds stopped working. So for me to find a medication that worked probably took like four and a half years to find something that long-term lasted. I want to ask you more about the medication because I think that's something that, especially in a faith community, can be so misunderstood. But also I think there's a general fear about going on medication for something that's not physical. And um, I think that there's already the the blockers with faith and then there's there's blockers with uncertainty of how they work. So can you tell me, like from your experience, when you first went on the medication, like what does it change? Like how do you know it's working and how do you know it's not working? Like Do you just take it and then all of a sudden issues come up in your life and they don't bother you? Like, how do you how do you know it's working and what does it do? Um, So it's a little bit like that. For me, I had, you know, kind of a little bit of the depression in there also. So I saw more improvement in the depressive side. My mood was a little bit better. I was able to go out and do more things, which as you kind of break down some of the things that prevent you from going out, you're like, oh, now I can have kind of a normal social life, which again, helps kind of decrease some of the anxiety, especially as a young person. But really mental health medication, it changes how your brain responds to things. So you're still always going to have those synapse connections. In a general overview of how your brain works, you just have thousands of connections. It's kind of just a giant roadmap. So what happens is there's a trigger and your brain sends a signal from here to here, point A to point B, And then as long as it does that enough times, it creates kind of a permanent path. And sometimes that's a really intense, you know, panic state. 
what the medication does is it kind of says, okay, we're going to lessen that a little bit. So the neurons and the different particles in your brain that are firing, we're just going to kind of decrease that amount a little bit, or we're going to increase the amount of another one and try to mitigate some of those symptoms, some of those reactions. You're still very much going to have them, but it's going to be lessened to an extent. So that's when things like combining it with psychotherapy comes in, because then you're treating not just the symptom, you're really getting into the underneath stuff of changing how your brain actually responds. Now, I, I want to ask, comparing, you know, the the medication and therapy, the, the, they're, they're great together. But, you know, you did mention before, you said, you know, your parents got divorced when you were young, that there was maybe some childhood trauma. So how much do you think that played a part, if any, in, in your anxiety? And how did the therapy, like, I guess, how much did the like chemical brain, you know, altering of a medication versus healing childhood trauma psychologically, where did they like balance in your healing process? And which was like more important? During my college experience, when I first started on medication, it was 100% medication because I just wasn't doing the therapy part of it, right? When I decided that I was going to really kind of tackle it with therapy, it was mostly therapy. I'd say it's 90% therapy and 10% meds. So I've been in really intense therapy for going on three years now. And I've been off my meds not because I wanted to be, but because of another health thing for really about a year and a half now and have been doing really well. So it really is the therapy for me, kind of getting into that childhood trauma and helping heal that more. But some people do need therapy and meds. But for me, it was like when I dug into the therapy, it helped more than the medication. Now, I I, I do want to point out one thing and I want to read your words to you because I, I, I want to hear, hear more about this part of what you sent me. You know, everyone who applies to be on this podcast sends me a little paragraph of, you know, the, their story for me to read. Mm-hmm. And you had one thing and it relates to, to what you're saying now. You know, you just said you've been off medication for a little bit. You're, you're healing all of that. But you included this in your story. And I I really want to hear more about it. You said, I once stopped my medications because I had convinced myself that real Christians could get rid of it without medication. And what followed was the worst series of panic attacks I had ever had. But now you're saying like, hey, I'm off medication and it's actually been good and I'm healing my trauma. So what happened that first time around? What was the story with just stopping your medication? Yeah, I, I don't even know what triggered that. I think it was just like the, you know, the social media that I was surrounded in was telling me that, okay, you've been on medication for a while. By this point, you should have figured it out. And so, you know, good Christians, it was kind of when that kind of naturopathic stuff started breaking into kind of the Christian mom world. I'm not a mom. However, the content creators I followed were. And so I was really hearing this from a lot of different sources saying like, if you really trust God and you are good in your faith, then you should be able to do it without medication. And at that point I had been doing well for a number of months. Sometimes with anxiety and depression, if we think about like seasonal affective disorder, it kicks up a lot more in the winter. So I had gone all summer feeling pretty darn good as one does. So in November of you know, a couple of years ago, it was pre-COVID. I just decided, all right, I'm going to stop my medication and challenge myself to be able to do this on my own and do it through faith and, you know, read all of the Christian self-help anxiety books and just do it that way. And I lasted maybe two months before. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was bad. In fact, I had, I had not been doing well for 
a couple of weeks and I had gone out for drinks with a couple of coworkers one Friday night and I don't know what kicked it off. I don't know what the trigger was, but here I was then crying in this bar and not from alcohol, surprisingly. Um, but I was crying and I remember just like being like, I got to go. And I got my cars in tears and I called my mom and I'm like, I need to come home. And she's like, okay, fine. And like, you know where your house is, come home. And I went home and I was just curled up on the couch for days. I had called into work. So I went home Friday night, Sunday night, I texted my boss and I'm like, I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Sorry. You know, I'm sick, whatever. And in reality, I was very physically sick. And my mom was like, no, you need to go back to, you know, you need to go back. You need to go back to work. So I left home and went back to where I lived on request of my mom, but I wasn't going into work. I called in, I think four days that week because I just couldn't. I was in such a state of panic and tears and there was nothing that I could do to calm it down. And I remember texting my therapist, but I didn't want to feel like an inconvenience. So I just went home and I laid in my bed for four days and called my boss and I was like, I'm really sick, sorry. And my mom had called me then later that week and was like, you in her loving mother way was get your butt back into the doctor and get on medication like which was not something that she was a fan of she was not a fan of being on medication unless you had to be and she was like you need to go get back on meds this is not okay I am worried about you and so I did I went back in and I got on meds and I did okay after that I think part of it was I wasn't equipped with the tools to handle it I think we tell Christians that you should be able to do this, but then we don't equip them with the necessary tools to be able to do it. The reality is that this whole idea of, you know, pray more, cast your anxiety on him, give it to God and go to sleep. None of that is helpful unless you're taught how to do it and given the resources to handle it as such. You've conveniently not mentioned what you studied in college. And I want to get to that. I, th I think it's very interesting that you haven't mentioned it because I think that's the really important second part to this story is, um, what, I mean, what, why, why don't you tell everybody what you do now and what you were studying in college? Yeah, so I hold a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I, yeah, graduated, did four years of studying in psych, um, had some pretty um, neat research experiences there. I took a couple of years off to kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life and then, two and a half years ago, I went back to school and I'm just a couple weeks away from finishing my master's in school counseling. So for the last couple of months, I've been in a school working with kids with mental health, doing, you know, the school counseling side of things, working with psychs and working with a lot of different mental health diagnoses. So I've ended up in mental health. Surprise. Now, I, I once heard a, a saying that uh, and I want you to confirm to me if it's true or not, that people who study psychology in college are the people just trying to figure themselves out. Do, do you think that was you like knowing like, do you think deep down, even though you said, you know, you said before you thought it was teenage angst, you know, your mom told you it was teenage angst. You haven't gotten to your sophomore year yet you, where you realized something was wrong. Do you think there was a part of you that thought something was wrong and wanted to fix it and figure it out in kind of a quiet way? I think self-consciously or subconsciously, yes. You know, my decision at that time was I didn't like the major that I chose. And I had to then declare a different major because I didn't want to go on un undeclared, which again was kind of anxiety driven. And I was like, well, I like my psych class, so I guess I'll just keep taking these classes. But sure, in that first psych class, I was like, 
I would be interested to find out more about where I fall kind of on the spectrum of mental health stuff. So were there any stories or anything you learned during those college classes or anything since then that really impacted you that made you think like where you like learned to study or, you know, something like that that made you think, oh, my gosh, I think that's me or something like that. Probably the most recent one I can think of is like being on TikTok and listening to a bunch of like attachment theory, which is one of my kind of special interests, I think. But that was one where I realized there was a whole second level of anxiety in what I have now because I've always pinned myself as this anxious attacher because, hello, anxiety. And I saw something about an avoidant attacher. I'm like, huh, that sounds... That sounds like me. So I walked into my therapist's office and I'm like, is this me? Am I this? And she goes, yeah, where have you been for the last two and a half years? I'm like, are you kidding me? And she goes, yeah, how is this not obvious? You study psychology. But I think because we're so focused on other people and we think, you know, we're doing the things that are right for us, we often kind of misstep that because we are so focused on other people and trying to help them that we neglect our own stuff. So I want to hear now, now that we know you're an expert in this, but you're also kind of a, I mean, I don't know how else to say you're like a double expert because you've lived it, but also now you've studied it and you're in a really unique perspective because you know it from living it and you know it from, you know, just, just learning about it. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about anxiety that I think young people might believe or think are true? I think the big one is that, especially speaking particularly to kind of the Christian side of things, is that you should only work with a Christian therapist. That's a big one. I think in the church, we have a tendency to say, you know, like, don't, you know, only deal with it through faith. But if you really have to go and seek out additional help, make sure it's a Christian person. And there's there's no harm in that. But I think the misconception is that Christian therapists are inherently better. And I, I would argue, not that they're not, but they're more on an equal playing field, I think you're going to find a lot more of kind of an unbiased view from an, you know, a secular therapist, or at least just someone who doesn't present themselves as a Christian therapist. I think another one of them is that, you know, it's, it's a temporary thing, right? I've been in therapy and doing well for really, you know, been in therapy for two and a half years, um, have been doing really well for about a year, but that anxiety is still present. Like it doesn't magically go away. It still ramps up. The difference is that I now have the tools to manage it in a way that doesn't throw me into a panic attack right away. Now, I I think one of the other big misconceptions that that I've heard that I think, um, you know, the older generation can put on younger people or that we could even think ourselves is I can fix it on my own. Like this isn't something, you know, I, I I don't need somebody else's help it's just anxiety, I can fix it on my own. So what were ways, if you're thinking back, that you tried to fix it on your own when you had anxiety? Yeah, alcohol was a big one. Being in college, that's kind of surrounding you. It was, you know, if I can just relax with a drink or many more, then I just wouldn't be able to feel the anxiety. Then I would be too out of it to be able to feel it, which didn't really work. I think even when I was drinking, you know, it was still kind of there. Yeah, I think... Another way I tried to deal with it on my own was like self-help books, specifically Christian self-help books. I remember reading like Max Lucado and, um, you know, there's another one that's like, it's all, it's all under control or something like that. And that was when I really leaned into, cause that was when I started to accept that, okay, this is something that I just want to have, you know, anxiety is based in control and an imbalance of control. But I really leaned into some of those like Christian self-help books, which are not bad, but they're not written by mental health therapists. And so the advice is good, it's sound, but it's not 
up to par with what you'd get from professional help. Another one is I really kind of leaned into the church and not in like, and I can fix it on my own, but like if I just go to my church community, it'll be different because then I'll get extra prayer, right? It's not just me, it's everyone else. Um, or I'll get in my community and then I'll have friends and then my social life will go up and then I just won't have time to be anxious or I'll find people that will really accept me and then I don't have to worry about thinking about judgment from other people. I think another one is that Christians use is they think that the anxiety is a result of shying away from a a Christian or a godly lifestyle. They think, oh, I was in college and I was partying and I was drinking and I was doing things that aren't really Christian and biblical. And that's why I have anxiety. And they try to form that connection. And then they go back to the church and think that that's going to magically fix everything. And I also did that. There was a period of about a year where I was like, not going to go out. I'm going to find new friends. I'm not going to connect with the people I normally connect with. And just put myself into a, a godlier lifestyle and it'll change everything. And that didn't happen. Well, there have to be some things that do work. That's the thing, because I think, that, you know, th therapists, you know, teach a lot about like when you're in that anxious moment, how to handle it. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to hear for, in your professional opinion, what are some practical things? Like if someone's listening right now, they have anxiety, they may not have talked about it with anybody yet. What are some practical things that they can do to help themselves heal a little bit? I think the number one is just... Uh, finding someone who you feel safe talking to and asking them to listen. I think sometimes when you're in that anxiety, some people are external processors and they just need a space to be able to process what's going on. I'm like that. I have, I'm fortunate enough to have people who are willing to open that space up for me. So that's a big one is finding someone that you feel comfortable talking to. And that kind of opens it up to be anybody. That can be a friend, a mentor, a coworker, your parents, your spouse, whatever. Another one is just kind of a practical, I use this with my kids in school, is really kind of catching that thought or that anxious uh, thought process when it comes out. So we say, catch the thought, challenge it, and then change it. So that's something where Okay, if my boss calls me into, the, into their office and they're like, hey, let's go talk. And I'm like, oh, no. And I kind of start down that spiral of I'm going to get fired and end up on the street. You know, you catch the thought and say, okay, I know that this is an anxious response. And then you challenge it and you say, okay, is that really what's happening here? Do you think that this is how your boss would fire you? Do you think that this is really going to be the result? What could this be otherwise? So really kind of engaging that cognitive process and then changing it and saying, okay, they're probably not firing me. They might just want to talk to me about a mistake I made, or they just want to check in and kind of allowing that unknown to be present in the space. So catch, challenge, and change is another really practical tip there. I always advocate for deep breathing. I know in like my elementary schools, we do, you know, there's 17 billion types of ways to take a deep breath, but you find one that works. And maybe it is just an inhale, exhale. Maybe it's a inhale for four, hold for seven and exhale for eight. Something that helps you kind of kick in that somatic process that allows your body to physically calm down and you kind of engage that parasympathetic nervous system and tell it to chill out. So I, I'm I'm a little worried to open up this can of worms because I know that 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 um you know everyone has very strong thoughts about this. But now that you've been through it as a Christian and I've gone through kind of the more professional side of it as a Christian, what can Christians do better? Because I think it's it's a very common belief that the church is not doing as good as it should when it comes to mental health. 
We're very good at physical health. We're very good at, you know, spiritual health. You know, a lot of churches are. When it comes to mental health, there's a lot of mistakes being made. So what do you think those mistakes are and how can we fix them? So I'm someone, I should preface this by saying I worked at a church for two years. I was in one of the biggest churches in this metro area that I'm in. And it was wonderful, but also we did not do enough. And I was able to see some of the kind of corporate side of churches. And I think ultimately... Churches are driven by the capitalistic side of things. I think, and and again, this is my opinion, I hope nobody comes after me for this, but I think if churches were to talk more about mental health and teach people how to kind of solve some of their problems, they wouldn't have congregations. So I think part of that's kind of a, we just don't want to touch there because we kind of know the result. But also I think really getting into kind of the nitty gritty of what do you mean when you say, cast your anxiety on him? What do you mean when you say, you know, lay it down at Jesus' feet, give it to God and go to sleep. Because the reality is that that's based in the idea of surrender. I wish that I could have figured this out so much earlier. It really wasn't until about a year ago when I realized no one has ever taught me what it means to lay it down at Jesus' feet. I think that's just kind of our cliche t-shirt saying that we throw out to people. What does it mean? So my big thing about this is that it's uh, focused in surrender. So when we say lay it down at Jesus' feet, give it to God and go to sleep, whatever, surrender is an active process. It's not just saying, all right, here you go. Here's my tray of things. Here, God, you deal with it and removing ourselves from the equation. Surrender is all about recognizing the limit of our own control. So the example I like to use is if we are looking for a job, our, you know, we have a limit in our control. Ultimately, as Christians, we believe that God's going to provide us with a job. However, we have a role to play in that, right? If I'm looking for a job, me saying, all right, God, give me a job. I'm going to trust you with this. And then I sit at home and twiddle my thumbs. I'm not going to get a job. You know, my limit of control then is, okay, I can control how many jobs I apply to. I can control um, interview practice. How do I prepare for an interview? I can control what my resume looks like and what kind of buzzwords I throw out. What I can't control and where that ends and where we have to accept and allow God and ask him to come into the equation is, okay, how many other applicants are there? What do they look like? What is the manager looking for? How many other people are applying? Is this job still open? Are they hiring someone internally? You know, is that job even actually open? Is it just kind of a ghost listing to make them look good, you know? But ultimately, so we can't control what the other party does, but our control rests in this idea that I'm going to do what I can and then allow God to step in and provide it. And so this idea of surrender, when we say give it to God and go to sleep, it's not saying here, God, you take this and deal with everything. It's saying, okay, I know that in this moment of anxiety, I can control what I say. I can control how I respond. I can control the path that I take to you know, counteract this anxiety. I can control, you know, maybe I do want to go to sleep and I leave it at that. But it's not saying, okay, God, you deal with all of this. And I'm just going to sit here and fester. Or I'm just not going to think about it at all. It's not practical. It's not realistic to go from worrying about everything and trying to control everything to not doing that at all. Cutting it cold turkey is never going to work. So our role as Christians then is saying, where's the limit of my control? And how can I make sure that I'm aware of that when the anxiety kicks in so that I can say, okay, God, you take this part of it. I'm asking you to show up and step in here because I've done everything that I can do. So where is your faith at now? 
Now that you've, you know, you, you've had these really low lows, you've gotten some treatment, you're in therapy. Where's your faith, faith at now? It's a point of contention, I think. I believe there is, I, I believe there is God. I believe, you know, in Jesus. I believe really the core foundations of Christianity, mostly because I've witnessed how good God can be and how he has shown up. There's a lot of things that have just happened that I refuse to believe is anything but God. Into the nitty gritty of kind of church politics and how churches function, I'm not currently a part of a church. I don't really want to be a part of one. I lean more toward the deconstruction side of things and not like a boo, I hate the church, but uh, I really want to figure out what is, you know, what is the Bible telling to me? Where do I as a Christian stand in all of the stuff that's going on in the world? So, I'm very content with where my faith is. I think the pure belief and kind of the undeniable belief that there is God and there is Christ is there. And I'm content with that. But I know that if I go and tell some of my family members or maybe some of my other, you know, more actively involved Christian friends, I know that's kind of a point of contention where they're like, well, are you actually a believer then? I'm like, I'm content with where my faith is. And I, I'm okay with that. Eventually, I want to work back into a church, but that's just not something that I want at this time. So to to wrap it all up, I think there could be a lot of people listening now, men and women who may struggle with anxiety, might be in those Christian circles where they're being disregarded or whether or not they're, they're being disregarded by a church, they just don't know what to do. What do you want to say to that person who's in the throes of anxiety right now and not knowing what to do? I think my first is tell someone and tell someone sooner than later because that anxiety can escalate very quickly and it can escalate very unexpectedly. So you need to make someone aware of what's going on in the event that it does escalate really unpredictably, then you have someone to go to if you need more intense help. My second would be if you're really struggling, one, start talking to your doctor. Um, I know that healthcare isn't always incredibly accessible, but find some way that you can talk to a healthcare professional and just have it on paper that says, I'm struggling with this. Maybe I don't know what it is. Maybe I don't know how to handle it, but make sure that you get it out to your doctor. I will always advocate for therapy for everyone. Again, not always accessible, but I will advocate for therapy. I'd say the best way for you to find a therapist, if that's what you're looking for, just Google therapists in your area, set up a five minute call to just kind of feel them out and see if you like their personality, but then find a community. Also, one of the worst things you can do is isolate yourself. Um, and I know that from experience, we want to be alone. We don't feel like anyone understands. And sometimes we just want to sit in, you know, the aftermath of anxiety on our own, find people you trust, find people you can reach out to find a community to be involved in. And that's not that you have to be out and doing things, but find people you can talk to on a regular basis about it. You know, I, I, I want to thank you for sharing your story, but I also want to thank you for something else. And that's your your pure honesty, because I think it's it's very easy for people to want to believe that once you get healed, that all of your problems will go away. You know, you won't have any more faith crises. You won't have any more stress. You won't have all of that. When in reality, hearing how you're thinking about your faith is actually a very beautiful thing. And I think it's it's showing, you know, that that you you have that belief. You know, there's something good there. But clearly, you've you've had some struggles in your life that have, uh, that have led you to this conflicted point. But I think a lot of people think that that place is wrong when asking questions and seeking 
speaking truth and challenging what you've what you've been taught to believe is a very important thing for every believer to go through. Because I, I I'm a firm believer of if you believe it's the truth, the truth will stand while when it's being questioned. And mm-hmm. if you're uh, if your anxiety is causing you to be afraid to question your belief, if it's causing you to be fearful of where those questions could lead you, know that getting those questions answered is a good thing. Getting clarity is always a good thing. And I don't want to say that, you know, answering those questions is going to cure your anxiety because there's, as we just learned, there's a lot of layers to that. But I think it's very easy for us to pretend and to say like, well, you know what, I've gone through therapy and now my faith just figured it all, figured itself out and I've got a beautiful ending to my Cinderella story, the end. When in reality, it can be the beginning that a lot of people need to start asking those questions and to get themselves in a better space, not only mentally, but to reach that space spiritually too. So thank you so much for um, your honesty. And if people wanna reach out to you, how how, how can they find you? Yeah, I'll be on Instagram. I keep a private account, but I'm happy to open that up and chat with people. Anytime I get, if I can be an open book for someone to ask questions or, you know, whether it's on anxiety or faith, I'm happy to do so. I feel like I have to preface that none of that is, you know, professional therapy or professional mental health advice, but my DMs are always open for people to ask questions or ask for help. And what, and what is your name on Instagram? Um, it is at uh, Kendall Surratt. It's um, at K-E-N-D-A-L-L-S-U-R-R-A-T-T underscore. Awesome. Thank you very much, Kendall. Yeah, thank you. 